Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Go to Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me tell you what I'm not going to preach about this morning. Just so uh, I'm redeeming some time here. Um, I've actually spoken about it a couple of times, and I've I've done that here at Uniontown as well. But the beginning of Mark chapter 5 tells the story, and and I love the way that Mark sets this story up. He sets the story up at the end of Mark 4, how, how uh, Andy spoke about this last week, and he did an amazing job and served us so very well last week. Um, there was a few things that he said that jumped at me that I'm going to completely steal for this morning, so be prepared. Um, but he's talking about this big storm that happens and how the disciples look at Jesus with, with great fear, and at the end of it, he asks, Jesus calms the storm, and he looks at his disciples and says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And, and the disciples are talking to each other like, who is this? I mean, this has to be the one. And, and yeah, why? I mean, you imagine in your head, I mean, if you've got a bunch of dudes in a boat, and they just got rebuked for being afraid, you know they're talking to each other like, I wasn't afraid. Were you afraid? I wasn't afraid. It wasn't me. He must have been talking to you. Thomas. And they park the boat, which is in the Greek at the beginning of Mark 5. They park the boat. And they get out, and immediately they're met on that beach by a raving lunatic who comes running out of the caves, out of the tombs. He is covered in sores and scars from cutting himself. I mean, he's salivating all over himself. He's, and you know the disciples in their mind are replaying the tape. Where's your faith? Why are you afraid? And, and, and Jesus steps in between, has this interaction with this Gadarian demoniac. You know the story, and, and this is just too good to pass up. The demoniac asks Jesus, hey, if you're going to cast out the demons that are in me, would you cast us into those pigs over there? And there's 2,000 pigs there, and you would expect Jesus to say no. Instead, Jesus says yes, and the demons are cast out of this one man and put into the 2,000 pigs, and the pigs lose their mind. And they go off the cliff, and now you've got a bunch of bobbing oinkers in the water. And, and you see the townspeople and the herdsmen get angry. And, and, and if you don't understand the culture, you lose why they're so mad. 2,000 pigs is a fortune. If your average pig weighs 180 pounds dressed out, going rate of $3.50 a pound, that's $630 a pig. And with 2,000 pigs, that's over a million, $1.2 million that is now bobbing in the water. What, what's, what's crazy about that, and probably more importantly to us, is the yield of bacon per pig is 15% of the dressed weight. That is about 27 pounds of bacon per pig. That's 54,000 pounds of bacon, 27 tons of bacon gone. We need revival. It is terrible. Jesus and I are going to have a conversation about that when we get to heaven. But you know the story of this miraculous moment that Jesus takes this man who no one could help, and through his love and healing of this man, sees him sitting clothed in his right mind when the people return to check in on what happened to the pigs. At the end of that story, this remarkable thing happens where the demoniac says, Jesus, I just want to be with you. I mean, Jesus and the boys, Jesus and the disciples are on the boat getting ready to pull out. And he says, I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. And you expect Jesus to say, well, sure, jump in. I mean, he's always looking for disciples, right? Instead, he says, no, 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 no. You stay here. You go to your friends and your family. And you tell them how I've mercied you. Just unexpected. We get a little bit more of the unexpectedness 
in the life and ministry of Jesus here in Mark chapter 5, where I want to focus on the end of the chapter, starting in verse 21. Let's just kind of walk through this. These are two stories who are very different, and yet they're woven together by Mark in this perfect way. Verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd had gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus... He fell at his feet, and he begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. So this man named Jairus, we're told he's a synagogue leader. He, he in the local synagogue, would have been an organizer uh, of the, 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 the services that would happen there in the synagogue. He would organize who would pray, who would read the law, who would interpret the law, who would teach, who would collect the alms, and then after their synagogue service, who those alms or offerings would be distributed to among the needy. He, he, the synagogue leader, Jairus, would have been a prominent member, a trusted member of the community. And he comes to Jesus and he falls on his face because he is facing the unthinkable. He's facing something that is, in his own opinion, is, is insurmountable. And he says, my daughter is dying. Luke tells us in his telling of this story that this is Jairus' only daughter. You come with me. You lay your hands on her so she can get well. And Jesus obliges and goes with Jairus and they begin to head towards Jairus's home and along the way the crowd gathers around him following with Jesus and it says even pressing against him verse 25 now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors she had spent everything she had and wasn't helped at all on the contrary she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing, for she had said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased. She sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So here is this unnamed woman in the crowd. She has been sick for a long time, 12 years, Mark says, and it says that she has suffered with an, an issue of blood. And there's a few things that that could actually be, but most likely it's an issue related to, to a uterine problem or a menstrual problem. And if, if you consider this, just consider this for a moment, a, a constant loss of blood, it makes your blood pressure dip. When your blood pressure dips, it, it affects the flow of oxygen to your brain. And when that happens you can be lightheaded, even extremely fatigued. For a week, that can be depressing. For 12 years, it's debilitating. She's gone to every doctor known, every doctor available to her, and she has found them to be completely helpless. I mean, most doctors at that time actually would use nothing but superstitious methods and remedies to try to treat problems, so it's no wonder why she wasn't finding any, any relief. But, but to make it worse, not only was she finding no answers, to make it worse, so much worse, now she's bankrupt. She has spent everything she has to try to find an answer, a solution to her medical problem. They have given her no answers, and they've taken all of her money. 
Anybody relate to that? And here this woman joins the crowd that's accompanying Jesus to Jairus' house, and her, her mere presence in the crowd makes her an outlaw. See, 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 we sort of react to the fact that a woman who has this issue of blood for this period of time would have been deemed unclean, unable to accompany other people, unable to go to the tabernacle or temple for worship, unable for any of those things to occur, but, but Leviticus 15 tells us clearly that because of this issue of blood, she would have been unclean. And when we hear that, oftentimes we think about it, it's like, that's very insensitive. That's cruel. But you need to remember that this was occurring during the pre-microscope, pre-scientific, pre-ibuprofen age. They, they, they have no way to tell what's causing certain conditions. If you lived in a, in a Roman city, there was a sewage system. And that sewage system was an open ditch. That's it. And in the Roman cities, in that Roman Empire, you would be living just in a very tight quarters, crammed together. In a Roman city at this time, only 50% of the population made it to the age of 25. Only 5% of the population in a Roman city made it to 50 years old. Now, living in the country... Could get you a few more years, but not a lot more. But you have to remember that in this time, you can't tell an infectious disease from a non-infectious disease. Infected blood looks the exact same as non-infected blood. And so when you understand and contemplate the Jewish law, what you understand is that God was actually doing the Hebrew people a favor, and he was protecting them from the, odds, the spread of great disease. So with this medical condition, whatever it was, she was unclean. And, and think about this. As, as tired as she would have been from, from the loss of blood, as exhausted as she may have been, if she was to stop and take a rest or to take a nap, the things that she would sit on or the things she would lay on would also be unclean. If she touched someone, they were unclean until they bathed and then waited until the next day. Being unclean, you weren't allowed in the temple. Being unclean, you weren't allowed around family. Being unclean, you were alone. So this woman wasn't just desperate physically. She was desperate spiritually. She was desperate socially. So why is she here? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious. She's heard of Jesus, and she has hope. If I just touch his clothes, he's got the power to make me well. So no matter what the obstacle was, no matter what the inconvenience was, no matter what the stigma was, she was gonna touch him. And when she does, instantly her flow of blood ceased. And she sensed in her body she was healed of her affliction. Let's keep reading verse 30 then. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, Wait, wait, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. And the woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Now picture this for a moment. You're, you're walking in this massive crowd of individual. 
You're, you're surrounded by people who are trying to get by, trying to get closer to you, and, and suddenly you stop the crowd. To all traffic stops, you're like, somebody touched me. Who was it? And the answer is, everybody has touched you. There isn't a person who hasn't. I mean, that's just kind of the way, the way this works, but, but you can tell that Jesus, something's different here, and Jesus understands something different happened. He says, who touched me? And you can sense almost the, the scanning of the crowd. Moms and dads, you understand this. Who took the cookie? You can tell, can't you? There's something about the eyes. You get the sense that Jesus is just. Now, who was it? Who touched me? And the disciples are not incensed, but they're like, what, seriously? Who touched you? Come on, Jesus. Don't forget Jairus. You think the disciples are like, come on, Jesus, let's keep moving. You think they were like that? What do you think Jairus was like? Come on, Jesus. Your daughter's sick. We gotta get moving. Why are we stopping? Jesus is looking around. He says, this, this is different. Somebody touched me. I felt the power go out of me. Okay, what is that? No clue. No, no, a couple of ideas, but no actual idea. There's a, there's a couple of good theories out there. Maybe, maybe uh, the, the Father, God the Father, actually healed this lady when she touched Jesus, and Jesus was aware how God the Father had worked through him. Perhaps it was because of her uncleanness. When she touched Jesus, she made him unclean, and he became aware of that as he transferred his cleanness to Jesus, or to, to, to the woman. But we're not really sure. We don't really know. What we do know is he wanted answers. He wanted to know who it was that touched him. What do you think is going on in the mind of this woman? You're in this crowd. You're being stealthy and sneaky because you're not supposed to be there. You're an outlaw. You're unclean. And you find somehow to get to Jesus and reach out just to touch the edge of his robe. Instantly you're healed. You know it. You turn to leave. And he says, every, all of a sudden everything stops. And he says, who was that? Somebody touched me. She knew. She knew she had been healed. She knew the bleeding had stopped. So what's happening in the life of that woman at that moment? I'm, I'm putting myself there. I mean, have you ever been called out like that? I have. Your, 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 your palms start to sweat. Your mouth goes dry. Every deep breath, you shake on the exhale. <laughs> Your vision's affected. Maybe none of you have ever sinned. I experienced that when I sinned, I think. <laughs> so what does she do? She falls down in front of him, and she spills the whole truth, is what Mark says. Listen, Jesus, I've had this issue of blood. It's been for 12 years. I've gone to all the people. They've taken all my money. They've never been able to fix anything. And I haven't been able to find any relief at all. So I heard about you and I thought, that's the one, the one. Nobody else can do this, but he can. He's the one. And so I know I'm not supposed to be here. I'm unclean. I'm still not supposed to be here for another seven days, even after being made clean. But I've come here because that's the only way I can find redemption. It's the only way I can find salvation for my health. And so I reached through the crowd and I touched you and I thought I would just leave. But instantly I felt better. And you called me out, and that's what happened, and this was me. 
And after her full confession, waiting for a response, I don't know how long Jesus made her wait, but I bet you she found it difficult even to make eye contact at that moment. Short of breath. What's going to happen next? And Jesus calms that fear in an instant. And he calls her daughter. It's the only time Jesus ever called somebody that. Daughter. So after 12 years of being an outcast, because of her healing, she's now welcomed back into the community. She's even welcomed into God's presence even more. Jesus says, you're in my family. Let's take just a second to look at that picture of what it means to come to Jesus in salvation. The moment that the unhealthy person in their health realizes that no other doctor can, can bring healing, no other doctor can bring health, no other doctor can bring help. This is the one doctor that has all the answers that can bring the cure, and no one's stopping me from getting to them. And as an unbeliever, you get to that place in your life where you recognize that everything else you have trusted in is worthless because there's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. And so we run to him. And when we run to him, we transfer our uncleanness onto him. It's that glorious exchange that occurs when Jesus became sin for us. The one who knew no sin took our sin and we got his righteousness. Deserving of condemnation but experiencing the grace from Jesus himself. Daughter, Faith has saved you, so go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking these words, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Put yourself in Jairus' shoes. You made it to Jesus first. You made your plea before this lady showed up. You were on your way to your home to see the power of Jesus heal your baby girl. But because of this person who made a request of Jesus, he gets sidetracked and my request is, is no longer answered. Think about the process that Jairus went through. Hope filled when Jesus said he would go to his house. Irritated when, when, when he stops the crowd. Frustrated when he begins to engage the woman and talk to the woman. Don't you know my daughter's dying? And then devastated. Your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, verse 36. He told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He didn't let anyone accompany him except Peter, James and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. What, what I want you to understand is, 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 is kind of what happens not only in this culture, but what's happening in this moment. These people have come and like, stop wasting his time. Your, your daughter's dead. And Jesus overhears them and he says to Jairus, I'm not done yet. 
I'm not done yet. There's, there's hope. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to why this is a waste of time. Don't, don't get sideways because you've had to wait for a little while. I'm here. Let's go. And so Jesus gets Peter, James, and John, and he heads to Jairus' house. And as they get to Jairus' house, what they find is the mourners are already there. Now, that's not uncommon. In this area, in the Palestinian area, the, the, the reality is that the mourning would occur immediately after death, and burial would happen shortly thereafter because the bodies would decay so very quickly because of the, 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 the climate of the area. Now, now, this wasn't just family that had gathered when they heard the little girl had died. No, 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 no. There was a requirement that every family who lost somebody would have paid mourners come. Even the poorest of a family had to have at least two mourners. So Jairus, a man of significant worth and value and position in the community, must have had many more. And so, so when you get there and you get the picture and you hear the mourners were already there weeping and wailing, and they did more than just cry. There, there was a whole routine. Mostly women. The mourners were, were mostly women. And what they would do is they would have one person who would be the lead, and that one person would stand in the middle, and the rest of the mourners would get in a circle around them. They would stand somewhat hunched over, and their hair would, would, would fall off their shoulders, their head, and, and drape in front of them so you couldn't even make out their face. And they would begin to slowly do the death dance, left to right, around the circle, all the time crying, weeping, moaning, and they would continue that and get louder and louder and louder and louder and until they finally buried the body. They would create this huge hoopla. And so when Jesus shows up, they're already there. They're already weeping and making this great commotion. And Jesus says to them in verse 39, why are you doing this? The child isn't dead but asleep. Verse 40, they laughed at him which proves they weren't truly emotionally invested in this little girl. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. So the mourners turn to laugh as Jesus enters the room where this little girl is lying with Peter, James, John, and the parents. And, and follow along, verse 41. He took the child by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kuam, which is translated, little girl, I, I say to you, Get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus walks into the bedroom where this little girl is lying dead, and he says to her, Talitha kuam, which, which, which means little girl, get up. Literally translated, lamb, Wake up. And, and I don't know about you, I do. I sensationalize that. You hear this profound statement coming from the mouth of Jesus as he raises this little girl from the dead. And what we fail to recognize is that is just a phrase of endearment. It's daddy walking into his 12-year-old's room, and today in our culture, the way we would translate that is, hey, sweetie, it's time to get up. Or in our house with our girls and me, it's baby doll, come on, let's get going. And she does. 
So let me ask you this question. Why does he tell her to get up? Why does he say it? She can't hear him. She's dead. So why does he say it? He says it for those other people who are in that room. It's for their benefit. And that's not the only time that Jesus does this, nor is it going to be the only time Jesus does this through the rest of the book. <clears throat> why, why, why would Jesus lead them into a storm? One of the, the, the biggest mind-blowing moments of last week and listening to Andy preach was, was just that. Why are the disciples in the storm? Because they were being obedient. That, 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 that is one of those moments where we need to recognize that. Jesus never promised us it would be simple or smooth sailing. But he did promise he would always be with us. So, so, but, but why? Why would Jesus lead them into the storm? So they could know him as Lord over the storm. Why, why would Jesus tell the demoniac man that he couldn't be his disciple? Why would he deny another follower? Why would he deny that man the privilege of traveling with him and sitting at his feet and learning from him so that his friends and family would know that Jesus was the Lord over demons? Why allow one woman to stop him in the middle of this huge crowd? Why deal with a, a long-term disease that she's had for 12 years and could certainly make it another day, why deal with that then and allow that little girl to die so that the people around him could know that he is the Lord over our long-term disease just as he's the Lord over the grave. It's in those things, in those moments that Jesus demonstrates for us who he is. He's Lord over the storm. He's Lord over the fever. He's Lord over the demons. He's, he's Lord over the long-term disease. He's Lord over death. He reigns. He rules. He is the authority. He is the power. And he has demonstrated yet again what Mark is trying to paint the picture for us as. He is the Son of God. There is no other. Now let's get practical. You may be thinking, I know that already. I believe that. So why do I need to go through this? Why, why does he answer their requests and not mine? Why does he deliver them from sickness, not me? Why does he protect them and theirs, but not me and mine? Why the storm? Why the disease? Why death? Listen, I, I'm not going to claim to have all the answers because I don't. But I will tell you that without those things, you don't need Jesus. And without those, you'll never end up demonstrating that need for his help, for his rescue. Without those, you'll never get to experience the power of Jesus for real. But what I think Mark is trying to communicate to us in these two stories is without those, you'll never get to experience the care of Jesus for real. I mean, look, look at the moments that, that Jesus demonstrates compassion and care like, like you've never seen before. You, you've got that first story with, with the woman. When, after she has touched his, his robe, there's only two people who know what happened. Everybody else is completely oblivious to it. But by calling it out, he keeps her from disappearing into the crowd. 
just another lady who can't explain how she was healed, just that she was. And in his care and his compassion for her, he doesn't reprimand her, he doesn't scold her. So it's more than just a healing for her. More than just power over sickness. He's the power to not just make you right. He has the power not just to make you well. He has the power to give you peace with God. He has the power and authority and he takes delight in adopting you into his family. And this one who is Lord of life and Lord over all delights to call you his daughter or his son. Perhaps more poignant for us is the care and compassion that Jesus shows to Jairus. So the people come to Jairus, and this is, this is here in, in, in verse 35. People come to Jairus, and they, they say this to him, your daughter is dead. Don't bother her anymore. Don't bother the teacher anymore. So let me ask you this. Up until that point, how was Jairus bothering her, him? How was Jairus bothering the teacher up until that point? He wasn't. What I believe they're talking about is Jairus' response to them after they told him that his daughter was dead. The desperation in Jairus elevated in ways that we cannot, actually, I take that back, some of you can understand. Jesus, they, they just tell him that his daughter is dead. Jesus, I need you, I need you now. Forget the crowd. I don't care what they need. I need you now. I've got no other answers. I've got nothing. I am hopeless. I am helpless. She's dead. I need you to step up. I need you to deliver me. I need you right now. Come with me. You get the sense that these people have come to him and said, don't stop bothering the teacher. She's dead. It's too late. It says Jesus overhearing them. Some of you have a note in your Bible. It's not just overhearing. It's also ignoring. Jesus heard exactly what they were saying to him, and Jesus chose not to respond to them or to what they were saying, but instead, he responds to Jairus. And he says, don't be afraid. Look at me. Look at me. Don't be afraid. Just believe. I'm not done. He grabs Peter, James, and John. He grabs Jairus and his wife, and they head into that sweet little girl's room, and he takes her by the hand, and he smiles, and he says, baby girl, it's time to wake up. She pops up and heads out of the room, and they are astonished. You see the care Jesus had for Jairus in that moment when everything exploded around him. And Jesus said, I know. But look at me. Don't listen to anybody else. You look at me. Don't be afraid. Just believe. He also showed great care and concern for that little girl. See, Jesus says something that has come up a number of times in Mark, but this time it's a little bit different. He says to them, don't tell anybody about what just happened. 
Okay? We're going to talk about that at some point. I'm still trying to figure out where that fits the best to try to explain what Jesus is doing in the book of Mark there. But, but don't, 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 don't tell anybody what just happened. The reason Jesus is saying that here is because if you remember, Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. And you get to John chapter 12 and the Pharisees say, we need to put Lazarus to death because of his testimony, people are following Jesus. I believe that Jesus in this moment is caring for Jairus' daughter and her family by saying, don't tell anybody, it's for her safety. You want to see a greater level of care and concern? <laughs> Look at how this chapter ends. Raise her from the dead. Don't tell anybody about it. Get her a sandwich. <laughs> Only Jesus would raise somebody from the dead and be concerned that she gets lunch. Only our great Savior would be so powerful as to be able to heal from sickness, cast out demons, make the lame walk, heal the shriveled hand, calm the wind and the waves, cast out demons, heal from long-term illness, raise the dead, and then in the very same breath, care for us like a daddy bringing us into his family, focusing us on his words, not their words, caring for even our most basic needs, even if that means lunch. Not every storm gets hushed by Jesus. But he will never be shaken. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And he got you. For some of us, every day, this is one of the most difficult things we can do, but it is one of the most important things we can do as being challenged by Jesus. Don't be afraid. Only believe. Pray me, Father, please, would you heal wounds even right now as we pray? Would you redeem what seems to be unredeemable in the lives of your people as they wrestle and struggle with real pain? God, would you come alongside them? And just as Jesus did with Jairus, would you lift their eyes to meet his. None of us can fix. You can. And you can do things that we cannot even begin to imagine. Father, would you do that even here among us? Lord, I pray for the one who may be here this morning who is still far from you, who is separated from you because of their sin. God, I pray that this morning would be the morning that they simply cry out and ask you to be their Savior. Father, I, we, we, we yield to you all of our moments, all of our days, trusting that you will carry us 
because you promise that you will. So it's in the name of our great promise keeper we pray. Amen.